Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite t-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. We're told we live in a world dominated by the race for attention. So some people call it the era of the attention economy, and it's what's shaping everything about contemporary life. Turning our attention to things into money, and ultimately, of course, big profits. But to pay attention to something needs communication. Hello, I'm Jen Martin. And I'm John Langer, and this is Communication Mixdown. And one of the most profitable devices that uses all kinds of specially designed communication to operate in the attention economy is the pokey machine. Charles Livingstone works at the Department of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash. He's a long-time researcher into the impacts of poker machines on community health and well-being. Most recently, he's been examining the design and communication features of one pokey machine in particular. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Now, look, there is one machine, and I just can't wait for you to tell us about this. It's benignly called the (laughs) Dolphin Treasure, but it's not so benign after all. No, it's not benign. I mean... It's a device which, I mean, it's actually an older-style game these days, but it's been around for a while. I think it was first developed in the late 90s, and essentially it's a fairly standard poker machine or a gaming machine, gambling machine, as we call it, which is electronic. It's a computer. It has um, a certain theme, which is all these little sea creatures, including dolphins that leap out of the waves when you get a prize, and it uses all the tricks that gambling machines use um, typically to encourage people firstly to use it, uh, to continue using it, and in many cases, unfortunately, to spend all their money and a great deal of their time on it. Okay, so look, you said it uses all the tricks. Now, can you can you tell us, lay people, what those tricks are? All right, there's, uh, there's a couple of well-known psychological principles which all gambling machines use and which many other devices that we're constantly confronted with also use. These are called operant and classical conditioning. So operant conditioning provides that if you are provided with a series of rewards which you cannot predict but which you expect to happen sooner or later, then you will continue to use that device or stay with it um, until you do get those rewards. And they generate a sort of a sense of anticipation which is itself something which is or can be addictive. Uh, and when you actually get the rewards, that is also addictive. The other uh, conditioning principle is called classical conditioning, and that is when you associate bells, whistles, um, tunes, whatever, with a reward. So you know, the classic example of that is Pavlov's dog. Pavlov, who was a 19th century physiologist, 
worked out that if you play a metronome or ring a bell when you feed your dog, then sooner or later the dog will come to associate the sound uh, with the reward, the meal, and will start to salivate even if you don't feed it. So if you combine those two features, as poker machines do, then you end up with a device which is very good at habituating people to its use, to establishing the habit uh, and effectively inducing an addiction. So poker machines use both of those principles and they use them with all the bells and whistles that you can imagine. And the Dolphin Treasure pokey machine, it's at the centre of a landmark legal case against Crown Casino and the poker machine mm. manufacturer Aristocrat Technologies. Mm. Tell us about that because we get into some really interesting um, things, don't we? Well, yes. And I mean, the thing about this machine was for many years I've been trying to get the design documents, which are called PAR sheets, probability accounting reports, which specify how the machine works. So it, you know, sets out what the symbols are on each of the virtual reels and what arrangements will produce what rewards and so on. And we could never get that from the industry because they don't share that sort of information. Okay, let's just stop there before we get on to the court case thing because I was going to talk to you about this. I find that fascinating that they can't give that up. They won't give it up. It's like trying to get the Holy Grail. And this is your research, so... (laughs) It's like trying to unlock Pandora's box. But as a researcher and certainly as members of a democracy, don't we have a right to that kind of information? Well, I would have thought so. And indeed, the regulators should actually have access to that. But all the regulators around Australia have outsourced the testing of these devices to these private labs. And they have contracts with the industry and the industry provides them with copies of the game and with the design design documents, the PAR sheets. Uh, But... Because the government doesn't have them, they treat them as commercial incompetence and we can't get access to them. And my colleagues in Canada have been able to do that because in Canada the gambling industry is owned and operated by the provincial governments and so you can FOI them. So I've got Mm. colleagues in Canada that are deconstructing the games and reproducing them on computer over there, but we can't do it. So in the end, we bought a machine. I had a a donor who was kind enough to cough up some money and we actually went out... It cost $5,000. We probably got ripped off because it was quite an old game, but nonetheless, it was still money well spent because it enabled us to deconstruct the software of the game. The fact that you have to go to so much trouble to get something that has such an impact on people's lives and is, should be a concern of public health, I think, is unconscionable. That's not a question, is well, it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I, I can but agree. And indeed, the court case was alleging that the operation of this device was not only misleading and deceptive under Australian consumer law, but also unconscionable. So, mm. you know, you, you're in good company in I'm making in good company. that I can uh, back assertion. It up. <laughs> yes. mm. But look, let's let's talk about this. So that the woman who is who's bringing, you know, um, bringing this case, um, mm. there's inc- let's talk about how bonded she became to the machine and how, how it encourages that. There, were, there was hugging, hugging of poker machines. Yeah, I don't know whether Shonika Guy, who is the applicant in this case, ever actually hugged them. She mm. may have. I haven't had the opportunity to ask her that question. That's but right. I there have was seen, incidences, yeah. I have, you know, I sadly spend a lot of my time wandering around pokey joints. And um, on one occasion late at night in a venue in regional Victoria, I did see a lady draped around the machine. But, I mean, the problem is people tend to anthropomorphise these devices. They have such a compelling power to them that, Many people tend to regard their relationship with the machine as though it were a relationship with another person. And 
I think there was a promising body of research undertaken some years ago to see whether you could treat gambling machine addiction in the same way as you would treat a sort of uh, compulsive romantic addiction or something like that. And I think with some success. So what we're talking about here is a machine which is so good at deconstructing itself as a sort of attractive device, creating an image of itself as something which was you know, almost irresistibly attractive that people are very much drawn to it and often regarded as a more important relationship than anything else in their life, unfortunately. So interesting, that um, comparison to a romantic liaison. That's an abusive relationship, isn't it? And yeah. you know, and, and the abuser is, is the, the people with the, you know, is, is the people with those par um, docs that have designed the thing and are using it knowingly to, to manipulate to manipulate people. Yes, well, I mean, that's my argument. I think at the end of the day, what you've got is a device which has been honed over more than 100 years to be extremely good at encouraging people to spend a lot of time on the machine and, in many cases, all the, all of their money uh, to the detriment of, well, their own well-being, but even more importantly, that of their family, their friends, the society in general. I mean, the harms that people experience from their addiction to these devices are extraordinarily um, multitudinous, I'm afraid. So Actually, you've let's got, talk about you know, those, Charles. Let's yeah. tell us about some of those. Well, I mean, you know, the obvious one is that people go broke. That itself is a major problem, but it's also related to relationship breakdown, separation and divorce and neglect of children. Gambling uh, machine addiction is associated with both physical and mental ill health. We can document that quite comprehensively now. Uh, it's obviously going to cause crime, both crime against the person and crime against properties. Um, we know that where there are lots of poker machines, where machines are concentrated in particular areas, intimate partner violence rates in those areas are 25 to 30% higher than in areas with fewer machines. Uh, once you adjust for all the other characteristics, machines tend to be clustered in areas of disadvantage or areas where people are experiencing a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, all of these impacts are disproportionately large because of, you know, the fact that people are already doing it tough. Yeah, it's not like uh, they've got a lot of cash to burn, is it? Look, no, Charles, and, I'm uh, sorry, I don't mean to cut you <laughs> off there, but unfortunately I'm really conscious of our time and um, having yes. having to move us along. And I just don't want to leave... Um, leave you without the opportunity to say you have the magic wand. You've got this is this is your moment. What would you do to to improve this? To stop this? You know, what do we need to do? This is. Oh, well, I mean, there's multiple things that we can do. We can reduce the maximum bet. We can introduce a universal pre-commitment system, which means people have the opportunity to decide up front how much money they want to spend on these things. We can actually change what we call the structural characteristics, the tricks that are built into the machine to make them less powerful and less potent and thus less addictive. Uh, we can restrict where they're located. Uh, we can reduce the number of machines in venues and we can reduce the number of venues. There are literally hundreds of things we could do to make these machines more like an entertainment product and less like a um, an addictive machine. Yeah, and a, an abusive relationship, a torpedo, a hand yeah. grenade into the middle of your life that's going to take out a lot of loved ones with it. That's right. Mm. Look, Charles, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's It's been fascinating. I, I've learnt so much. And, um, yeah, thank you for your time. All right. Well, you're very welcome. Okay. So that was Charles Livingston, and we're just going to have a brief community announcement. You've got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. That's a reminder who we are.
Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NAIDOC! And uh, you're with Communication Mixed Down. This week we've been talking about the attention economy and the way communication plays a big part in capturing and maintaining that attention. Julie Shields is our next guest. She's a visual artist and lecturer in art at RMIT University, and she knows all about attention-capturing devices. She decided enough's enough. Her smartphone was taking up way too much of her life and her attention. Hello, Julie. Hi there. How Thanks are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for being on Communication Mixdown. Uh, now, I introduced you and said uh, you'd had enough of your smartphone. You had a kind of epiphany, uh, sort of revelation that uh, your smartphone was taking over your life and was being used in all kinds of ways that you didn't like. So what happened? Well, I mean, like everybody else, I whenever I, whenever I got bored, I reached for my phone and usually... There were places I was sitting, you know, waiting for public transport, on trams, in, you know, airports, waiting at the specialist, and time starts running very, very slowly when you're waiting and you don't know how long you're going to have to wait for. And so, like many, I reached for my mobile phone and occupied myself on it. And what I realised I'd stopped doing was I'd stopped looking up and looking around me at the places that they were in, as boring as they were. Um, I decided to um, start to see if I could notice anything that would catch my attention visually. And you've called those, um, sorry, you've called those uh, those moments you're talking about, those in-between moments, and you've yeah. talked about something that you've called non-places. That, that's correct, and, and that's a term coined by a, an anthropologist. Um, in response to, you know, what he talked about with supermodernity, which is essentially a global, you know, how we've become a global world of, you know, people moving from places to places. And, you know, those sorts of places, you know, there's nothing that distinguishes them one from another, you know, as we all know, um, you know, where there's not a lot of variation or diversity in architecture or surfaces or or smells or so on and we're all just using it as a corridor essentially and so that's what he called a non-place which and is quite interesting because the other thing he says about it is, is it's where there is no history hmm. Hmm. so if you sort of think about you know outside your door there is a history there in the surfaces and the material and the people and the houses and so on but those those passages or those corridors Nothing sticks there. So that was actually where I focused because that was where I got the most bored, actually. And then <laughs> likewise, the most surprise that, you know, what I thought was, you know, dumb, um, industrially produced 
um, surfaces that had no value or aesthetic qualities when I looked at them very, very closely. So this is sort of going in really up close, like the micro-observations, that some of them were quite gorgeous and luscious and, you know, some of them exhibited, you know, libidinous qualities. You know, there's quite a... They're quite... Well, not so weird, but if... Hmm. If your listeners can see some of the photographs, um, tell, tell us, uh, give us a couple of examples of of a place, those sorts of places that you you well you ended up sort of thinking, I have to reinterpret these places. Well, they, um, I mean, the obvious ones, the back of the the table on an aeroplane where the tray table has got a little hook and it's sort of a bit phallic and it's a bit cheeky, you know, depending on what angle. It's on, and um, mm. there was three red um, hmm. Ottomans in a airport in in Canberra. And when I looked at them, they were you know luscious. And when I photographed it, it looked like you know the space between thighs. Um, you know, some some vacuum form material has you know seemed to have like goosebumps. So, I mean, what I noticed, I mean, I didn't plan to um, publish a photographic book I, um, out of it, but what I, after a while I noticed there were all of these surprisingly body-like qualities. Um, and, you know, that's what we do as creatives and as survivors, as people as mm. well, is, is that we seek out patterns and... Um, and Yes, you 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 described these places. Or what you encountered was unexpected. The unexpected sensuality of inert things. I thought that was a really nice way of describing it. And uh, you decided to go ahead and and take some photographs and and do some creative things around it. Yeah, that's right. And as I said, pass through the boredom as well. And I still have to, you know, force myself, you know, back to that project is just to take in what's going on around, you know, whether or not it be the wind on your skin or the smells, be it good or bad, or the kind of sounds that are going on, um, that public spaces are actually quite rich with very subtle details, but it needs a kind of different Mm. um, pace to, you know, and, and I mean, the didn't mean more than concentrating or focusing for more than five or ten seconds, but that's actually, you know, seems to be an eternity when you can grab your phone and yes, you know, get something I, in. I'm thinking, I'm thinking myself seconds. traveling on a tram, for example, or waiting for a tram, and you look around yourself, you and virtually every person has got a smartphone and they're uh, they're watching it and flipping through things. The thing that yes. occurs to me is. You're an artist, and and most people, of course, aren't really artists in that way that you you are. Do you think people can kind of turn their heads in the direction that you're talking about without necessarily being artists? Well, I I believe, um, you know, well, you don't need to turn it into a photo book, but I I think that we all observe vastly different um, qualities about... Spaces and I teach at RMIT, and I often um, get students to look at a very small part of public space and 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 notice and to try and notice something that they'd never noticed before. And the range of responses is phenomenal. 
You know, I think that, you know, our own, every individual has a sub- subjective um, point of view that yes. will always surprise me, certainly, and, and quite often themselves. Look great. And, and if, if I might add, yeah. know, the, the, all of the research points to what that they've done on boredom, that that the bored people um, produce the most creative outcomes. You know, they've done studies where they've given one group something really boring to do, and then another, you know, not boring, mm-hmm. and the and the and the bored group really outperforms because the brain is seeking yes. to stimulate itself, and so it has to draw on, you know, imagination and creativity to overcome that tediousness. A couple of things occur to me. You've actually addressed my last question, which was the attention economy, which is what we've been talking about in relation to communication tonight, uh, really does require, and I'm calling it their, the customers or the subjects of the regime, the last thing they want is people to be bored. But you're actually defending boredom, and you're saying and you're promoting the idea that it could can be have a lot of creative benefits. Well, it's also one that you can – well, I mean, there's – unequivocal evidence that daydreaming and boredom is incredibly productive in terms of just problem solving because you give yourself enough of a pause for the unconscious part of your brain to kick in and address stuff so Mm. you're not actually trying to solve the problem so you know that's a a definite benefit but the other one is that if, if one develops the capacity to sort of look and notice then then you know, you're making your own decisions about what you're taking in rather than having a bit of artificial intelligence dictate mm. through algorithms what you look at next. You know, because, you know, obviously on a digital device, you know, you're making choices, but the machine is also mm. very quickly offering you the choices mm. Mm. that it thinks you want. Julie, so, it's been... It's been really fascinating talking to you. I'm afraid we're, we're running out of time. I've got lots and lots of other things I'd like to ask you about. Yes. One of the things I'm, it occurs to me is, you know, you're talking about the, the world of art and how you got your students involved in this sort of stuff and looking, looking at these non-spaces. I'm wondering if we sh- you should roll this out and make it sort of a, a project for ordinary folk as well. I think you'd create, you'd create a whole bunch of creatives out there, if you like. I hope. Anyway, think yes. about think about it, Julie. It might be a good project. Yes. And uh, so it's a pleasure talking to you. And um, that was Julie Shields. She's a visual artist and a lecturer in art in public space, uh, in the Art in Public Space program at RMIT University. And shock horror, you won't find her looking at her smartphone while she's waiting for a tram on her way to work. And that's it for Communication Mixdown this week. Thanks to our guests, Charles Livingstone and Julie Shields. We're here next Thursday and we're going to talk to you then.